Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian cosmopolitan grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to talk about the contents of Another Weekend's. But first, I had the pleasure this week of sitting down with a return guest and friend, Mandy Smith. Mandy is the pastor of the University Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, author of a great book called The Vulnerable Pastor, and has done some recent writing on what to do with mixed feelings around the holidays. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you Mandy Smith. Mandy Smith, welcome back to the podcast. You are one of our few repeat guests. We've had wow. a couple, but honor. not many. I'm, I'm glad to have the privilege. And how are things in Ohio? Things in Ohio are okay. They don't feel very Christmassy, but they, they, are, they are good. Your state helped make America great again. I know. We, we don't talk about Ohio. that. I did Ohio. my best. I did my best. Ohio was the swing, was, the, uh, was one of the swing states. Like, uh, it's so interesting that like, it's like the candidates all spend time in like a handful of states. Yes. It's just so interesting. And you're one of them. You know, I know. It's still a mystery to me. I still don't pretend to understand how all of that works. For those who may have not heard your first appearance, you've written a book last year called The Vulnerable Pastor, which we talked about, which is excellent. Thank you. Yes, I have. And which many listeners read. Good. I hope said they, they liked, liked it. it. Good. And you're a pastor at the University Church. Uh-huh. University Christian. Cincinnati, Ohio. That's right. Right by the UC campus. Right by the campus. So mm-hmm. you've got a lot of students, a lot of hip people running around your congregation. It must do wonders for like your fashion sense and just It does keep hipness. you young. I must say that. You have to have at least one kind of slouchy beret to be on staff there. I would not, I don't have any slouchy berets. We actually not one. have no tattoos on staff, which is probably an unusual thing. So Nobody. We, no, not one tattoo on our whole staff. So, oh, I take that back. We have a new staff member this year. We have two new, t- we do have two tattoos now, but for a long time, we were actually quite surprised that we didn't have any yet. I, I, hadn't, have done, one... I hadn't done the tattoo kind of uh, uh, doc taking yet this year, I guess. So I have to take that back. I have one tattoo and no berets. Oh, well, there you go. You might be able to squeak by. So that, I don't know what that makes me, but it would make me something. <laughs> so you, you wrote a really interesting, a couple of interesting things. One was something you posted that was written last year, but most recently you wrote this piece about Advent and mixed emotions. And mm-hmm. I, I think what's interesting is usually when you use a phrase like that, like I have mixed emotions, it sounds like I'm a, I have a divided self or I'm disintegrated. And mm-hmm. a lot of times it's framed negatively. But you're kind of framing it differently. It's mm-hmm. like you, you, you want to say, hey, look, there's, there's a certain kind of state of mixed emotions that actually can be pretty therapeutic and healthy and healing, right? Oh, yeah. I spend most of my life with mixed emotions, so I hope it's an okay thing because that's just all I know. Just, I think it's also what a lot of introverts or artists would just call being overwhelmed. Um, yeah. And so I remember even when my daughter was seven and I was trying to teach her to use language to explain her own emotions to other people. And she said, how can I tell you how I feel when I have one feeling wrapped in another feeling wrapped in another feeling? (laughs) And I was like, I know this child so well, (laughs) we have, we have this in common. And so I think we all live that way, honestly. And it actually would be much better for us personally and for our relationships 
especially with people that we don't always agree with, if we were willing to actually confess, I'm kind of torn right now. Like, I really care about you, but I really hate what you just said. Or, you know, I long, I long to be in relationship with you, but at the same time, I can't stand you right now. Or what, you know, like, um, and I think God lives out mixed emotions constantly too. So I've just had to embrace that as a normal part of our lives and of our spiritual growth as well. We alluded to the fact that we are in an election year and people, you know, sometimes tensions run higher, especially at like holiday parties or mm. family dinners. And Jonathan Haidt is a guy, he does moral psychology. And he says, you know, that it's helpful to remember like how emotional and psychological our political commitments, our values are. Like they're not just things that we just come to like, oh, okay, I think this is what I think today. That Usually they're deeply emotional oh, absolutely. things wrapped up in our commitments. And so, yeah. yeah, I think that's wise. So, Which I don't think there's a problem with. I don't think it's a problem to be anxious or to be whatever emotion drives our decision making, whether it's political or not, but just to at least acknowledge that and to acknowledge that we are subjective and not try to pretend that we are somehow separate from, from our own emotions and our own humanity, unlike everybody else who seems to be wrapped up. You know, we see it in everybody else. It's harder to see in ourselves. Yeah. It's just, it's a self-awareness piece that sometimes is hard, you know? Right. Um, right. And not to put pressure on ourselves to not be emotional beings, but to at least acknowledge that's a part, that's a valid part of, of our lives and how do we live well and have relationships well without, without pretending that emotion, either being ashamed of our emotion or pretending it's not an issue at all, or trying to fix it, you know, to actually embrace it and, and respond well to it. Yeah, you say in your piece that until your church started following the lectionary a couple of years ago, that and you started celebrating Advent as a central part of you know your life in the community. Mm. That until until then, you really like didn't feel like you had permission yeah. to be to have ambiguous feelings or right. feel ambivalent during the holidays. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, I think Advent teaches us a posture that helps us throughout the whole year because so much of life is not what we would expect or hope. And that's scriptural to notice that. And yet at the same time, especially sometimes within the church, there is pressure to feel like we've arrived or we should have perfect peace all the time, or we should always feel blessed or happy or stable. And that just is never my experience as much as I do experience the peace of God and the goodness of what it means to be in relationship with him. I am constantly torn. And uh, I think that we have permission. I've been reading Walter Brueggemann's Prophetic Imagination, and it's given me so much permission to embrace, uh, he calls it uh, lamenting and dancing, you know, that the prophet sees what is wrong, what is broken and laments that. And at the, so at the same time, uh, dances with joy for what God is doing. And I think that the prophet mirrors God's heart in that, that he is honest about what is broken and, and laments what is not as he created it to be. And at the same time is driven on by a greater joy. And so I, I do think that this Advent posture of, of celebrating what has been given that was long awaited and also being okay to continue to be awaiting something else. That is a scriptural posture, I think. And it's one that actually feels right. And it, it gives me permission to be in that place year round. Once I've spent this season, every, every Christmas time, um, practicing that through Advent. I, I talk with Paul Zoll for on the on the on the anniversary of the Reformation in October, and he said that when I read your piece, I thought of something he said. He said that the Reformation truth that Luther held up that you know we're simul justus et peccator that was the sticking point that 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 we're at the same time uh, justified sinners, <laughs> you know at the same time sinner and saint. And he mm. said his translation of that is I am at the same time loved and human. 
and, and to be able to like accept, it seems like you're saying like the mixed bag right. that we all, that we always are. Right. Absolutely. And I think if we feel pressure to have arrived in whatever way that looks in our own understanding or our own belief or our relationships or whatever, if we feel pressure to have arrived, then we actually deny what it looks like to be constantly in need of the Lord and constantly relying on Him and embrace our our limitation, I think. But that emotional, that sense of emotional vulnerability is a part of embracing that limitation. And so it's it's a beautiful thing to have permission to be small or weak or limited or just plain emotional and yet to to trust that God is okay with that and and that he can be the source of our strength in that and that he feels and you know he he longs more than we long and he uh, rejoices more than we rejoice in there's just a certain kind of freedom and peace that comes from knowing that he's okay with that and I think in some ways he's more human than we are Carl Barth said that the question is not whether or not God is human, but whether or not we are. Mm. Well, there you go. I just quoted Carl Bart without even knowing. And you didn't it. even know about it. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's utter brilliance. I love this line you say. And yet, as we come to know the mixed feelings of the heart of God, we discover a strange reality that for him, the balance is tipped eternally toward joy. Mm. Yeah, that's. It's been an interesting thing for me as I have let myself lament and and sense that it was it was God's lament that I was kind of having a tiny, I think we all have a glimpse of his heart when we, when we allow ourselves to lament what is broken in the world. And yet at the same time, there was the deeper I got into that, the more I realized that the lament, and it wasn't even a realization. It was, it was an emotional experience of realizing that the lament is so intricately interwoven with his joy because he's, he's lamenting how it hasn't yet become what it will be or what it can be. And so, yeah, it's been a strange experience for me to let myself go into that place and to actually find that it leads me back out of it in some way. Yeah. You know, I, I was thinking also, it's just like, I, I don't know why your piece reminded me so much of things Paul Zoll has said to me, but like <laughs> and it, it is systematic. He has a little one volume systematic theology. It's great. It's like 87 pages, but, and in it, he says that the hardest thing the church has to grapple with sometimes is the presence of Christ's absence. And oh, the time wow. between the Say times. Say that again. It, it, the, one of the hardest things to grapple with, like for the church, like theologically, existentially, is the feeling of the presence of Christ's absence. Mm. And that oftentimes what we try to do is put something to fill it, like maybe a certain kind of biblical inerrancy, or maybe a certain kind of Pentecostal experience, or maybe if you're in the Catholic church, it's, well, we have an infallible Pope and that's how we deal with the anxiety that comes from the presence of the absence. And Mm. it it sounds like you're sort of saying, lean into the presence of the absence, like be honest about the fact that we're waiting for the second advent. And, Mm. and there's rightfully, there is a sense of longing in there that that we shouldn't try to cut paper over with like doctrine or practice or Mm -mm. it's okay. It can be there. Well, the funny thing is, the more that I have let myself lament, the more that I have sensed his presence, which is an interesting thing to think of now that you've put it in that way, because um, it's just that I want it in more fullness. It's not that I sense he's absent. It's just that it's stained by the fact that there's also other things that are present, like war and grief and broken relationships. And so... um, Reality television. Yeah, all of that, whatever. Yeah, mine were very highfalutin kinds of experiences and brokenness, but I don't know if I've ever used the word highfalutin, but there you go. So yeah, even even reality TV and, you know, advertising and all the things that represent what the world, yeah, (laughs) all the things that aren't what we would like them to be. Um, So yeah, that's funny because I think 
strangely enough, even though I'm lamenting his absence, you know, when I see all the things in the world that break my heart and I go into lament and lament his absence, somehow lamenting um, teaches me his presence because he's lamenting those things too and he's lamenting with me. And in any way we lament, it's it's actually a glimpse of his own his own heart. Um, and yet, yeah, I think this is where the childlikeness comes in for me that in saying, I just, I just want you to be here. I just want you to take away all this. There's a sense that, that he already is with us. And so I just, yeah, I have to trust that in setting aside my desire to fix it myself or to, to feel like it's, I understand it instead to say, I just need you Lord right now. Actually, is a, is a kind of childlikeness that children are not afraid to know that they have needs and to ask for help. So I think that's what it's teaching me. I feel like there's a, t- a tendency at the holidays, maybe, and maybe all the time, but maybe it's more pronounced at the holidays to like, you know, when somebody's in pain, so often we want to fix it because oftentimes I think it's, it's more about our own anxiety. Like mm-hmm. it's less about care for the other and more about, I'm anxious that you're in pain. It makes mm-hmm. me uncomfortable. If oh, we yeah. can fix it, I'll feel better. Yeah. Like, yeah. Do you, do you run into that? Absolutely. I live in that all the time. And it's, I remember the moment when I realized as a pastor, it's not my job to fix people's pain. It's a, it's my job to help people listen well to it and take it to the Lord. But that's really hard for me. And I want to fix it. My, I want to fix my own pain and I want to fix their pain too. So yeah, you're right. But to be in that together, um, yeah, it's, it sounds kind of masochistic to be like, we just have to be in the pain together. But, but I think, um, I often use the metaphor with folks that I'm kind of leading in a discipleship way where I feel like there's the kind of pain of doggy paddling furiously at the top of a waterfall because you're trying so hard to avoid the pain of the waterfall, but there's, there's, it's pain in itself to, to furiously avoid the waterfall, you know? And so there's, there's the kind of pain that brings new, new hope. You know, if you just let go and let yourself go over the waterfall, it's crazy and intense for a little while. And then it opens out to a new place. And that's the useful pain, the kind of pain that makes you doggy paddle avoids the right kind of pain, if that's what I'm saying. And so I guess I have to trust that um, our story is the story of death and resurrection and stepping into Hmm. the pain together is is actually a way to find peace is actually, that's what lamenting does. You know, we walk through in, in, in what it is that's, that feels so painful in our own lives or in the world. And, um, when we are willing to go there and, and cry out to the Lord there somehow, even if the, even if the source of the pain is not taken away, if we take that to him, then ultimately the advent we are longing for is to be in the presence of God. And if the pain drives us into his presence, then in a way we have what we've longed for. Hmm. Not in, maybe not in its fullness, but does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm thinking of this quote from uh, Hemingway uh, in Farewell to Arms, which is, there's that scene in, um, in Silver Lying's playbook where he's reading Farewell to Arms and it ends kind of sadly and he, finishes, he throws the book out the window because it's a sad ending. <laughs> oh man, I haven't seen that one. What oh, did he so say? It's a, it's a, it's, well, it's just a quote in, it, in the book is, um, the world breaks everyone. And afterward, many are strong in the broken places. Hmm. But those that will not break, it kills. Hmm. It kills the very good and the very gentle and the very brave impartially. If you are none of these, you can be sure it will kill you too. But there will be no special hurry. Wow. Yeah, you could unpack all kinds of things out of that, couldn't you? But it is. I mean, as I was thinking of your piece and just thinking like everybody, let's be happy for the holidays. Like Lindy Mm. was saying, Lindy was saying something to my wife. We're driving running errands like yesterday or the day before, I think it was yesterday. And 
She was like, I used to like Christmas music. And then I'm listening to some of the words and they're absurd. Some of these old, like, like now I'm getting cynical about it, but, right. but like, like, you know, everybody is brokenhearted. I mean, everybody, right. you know, we're born into a world soaked by sin. We're raised by sinners. We're raised by broken, wacky people at, at their best. I mean, if you've got good parents, you know, like <laughs> they're broken and wacky people. <laughs> and so we're all just walking around, right. On broken glass. Right. Like, right. <laughs> And if we're adding in this pressure, I mean, we live like that all the time. It's at Christmas that we feel this pressure. It's kind of a consumerist thing of like, I have to be in a certain mood um, by t- the 25th of December or else I'm a failure in some way. I have to have felt these like magical feelings and there's like a particular magical number of twinkle lights and Christmas carols and cups of eggnog that I have to have to reach this this desired experience. Um, I don't, I don't see that anywhere in scripture, honestly, and I can do without the extra pressure to feel a certain way, you know? So today I'm not feeling, I don't know if I've had any moments like that so far this Christmas season, but, um, I've just kind of set aside the guilt that goes with that. And I, I will be what I will be and God is good in regardless of how I'm feeling. So, um, yeah, sometimes the Christmas carols actually just make you feel worse. If you don't feel, if you don't feel in that mood, then, uh, it just feels like a judgment of why aren't you feeling these wonderful feelings right now. Um, but there's, there's a kind of a, a discipline, I think, though, of, of choosing to set aside, you know, for me, this is, there is a childlikeness in just being honest about where we are. I, I heard a, um, a woman who is the teacher of the year for Minnesota a few years ago talking about the things she has learned from preschoolers. It was actually leadership lessons from preschools, which was hilarious. It was at a leadership conference. and. I kind of, you know, expected um, she'd be saying children are whimsical and children are playful. And those are definitely true things. But she also said children are just honest and children are present. And children, if a a seven year old or a 75 year old tells you you're unattractive, you're unattractive. (laughs) But then after that age, right, people learn how to lie and BS. And when you're 75, you don't have time to be, you know, you don't have time to fool around. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, right. Yeah, but I think that's totally right. Right. So I'm not talking about like being being cynical here. I'm talking about just being present and being honest and and uh and not being afraid to to say where you really are and not being afraid to ask for help in that or to reach out to others and um and so for me, you know, I I could see how what I'm talking about could sound like or cynicism or wallowing in in um feeling sorry for ourselves or whatever, but um for me instead it's a it's an it's a choice to trust that God is good regardless of how we are feeling on any given day and uh so for me I have certain disciplines of that childlike childlikeness because and, and to be clear I'm not talking about childishness here and um I also don't have a problem with adulting you know I think we have to get up and get to our jobs and take care of our families and take responsibility and be good stewards and all that kind of stuff. But adultiness is, is often uh, what keeps us from embracing the reality of, of what is broken in the world or in ourselves, um, trying to feel like we want to control everything or fix everything or understand everything. And um, children just have peace of saying, here's who I am. Here's what I'm going through today. And there's other people who can help me with this and I am going to ask for their help. (laughs) And, um, 
and and interestingly a lot of that has has actually helped me find myself in a different place emotionally to find myself more open to wonder and more open to mystery and more willing to say I am small and it's okay you know Jesus says unless you become like a child you you can't enter the kingdom and and yet we disregard that as not really being very important because it's awkward or just doesn't seem um like something we want to do it's uncomfortable to think well what would that really look like to be like a child when we uh, also have bills to pay you know and orthodoxy chesterton talks about how basically there's a, a chapter called the ethics of elfland mm. and basically when you're a kid like el- like you you just don't assume elephants have to be hmm. or that roses bloom i mean everything looks like Alice in Wonderland because you're just so like the world, like you take a kid, a four-year-old to the zoo, mm. they're amazed. Mm. You take a 14-year-old to the zoo, like they're not off their phone the whole time. You right, know, like there's, right. a, there's something in, 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 as young children, like you're so present to what a mysterious and intriguing place the world is. Yes. And it still is. So absolutely. Nature is one of the ways art is another place that I know a lot of people find that same sense of wonder. There's an art exercise, um, which doesn't create something that's beautiful, but it's actually the process that's important. So it has three different stages to it. And one of them is um, trying to draw a spreadsheet because we have this this desire to control and, and understand. And um, as I was making this the first time, I was remembering when, when you're pregnant, the doctor makes you think that you might be able to decide what the stages of pregnancy of the delivery are going to be and, and track and keep in control and understand what's happening to you. And so it's almost like a spreadsheet that they give you. And then, um, of course, the experience of being in labor does not feel anything like a spreadsheet. And so the second stage of this art project is to just scribble like crazy, Mm. like to totally lose control, Mm. to go from like, I'm trying Mm. to make the lines as straight as can be to just like making a mess and not caring about what it looks like. And there's something really um, freeing about that, especially in a very performance oriented culture like we have. Mm. Um, And then the third stage is to um, take liquid paint and to just make a line of it across the page and hold the page up and just let it drip. And so Mm. you've gone from this like crazy still in control but like not not caring so much where the where the lines go when you're scribbling to now stepping back and watching something else take place where the the paint is dripping and there's something really beautiful about just like saying like oh I wonder where it's going to go and this is kind of an interesting thing to watch and so there's a a little bit of like changing our posture from control to wonder in this very small way with this this hands-on art experiment and so um, that's one thing that I have found really helpful to to help me change my posture. So that's a that's a discipline there. Do you have disciplines of childlikeness? No, I don't think so. I play maybe video you do. Games. Maybe you do, and you just haven't. Well, it's a kind I, of play. I, I don't know. I, I uh, well, it's very interesting. Last night, my six year old niece was here, and she labeled all of the rooms in the house. Like one, the living room where the adults were talking. That is the room where evil conversations happen. And then Ooh. this, my studio office down here is the professor's laboratory. So she wanted <laughs> to explore it. And so I sat her down and like put a headset on her with a microphone and she like was blown away that she could hear her voice like the radio. And I, she's like, is everything we do, we could play it back and hear it? I was like, yes, we can. That's great. So we, we did like this little like podcast radio show together. I love it. And I, and I was, I did wonder like how much, like I've always liked radio. I mean, I remember Howard Stern saying that the reason he got into radio is because his dad was a studio engineer and 
always was playing with the radio in the car. And he, Howard Stern just thought, if I could get in that box, hmm. my dad would love me and he would That's pay attention great. to me. Oh, so it's, wow. So on some level, I guess like microphones to me becomes a thing like I, I like, I enjoy like conversation it's that it's like the kid in me that would like to be on yeah. the radio kind of thing. So it's I a can fun. see that. I think yeah. having a conversation with you does kind of feel like play in a way and being around children. I mean, you've just said that too, that you were the one who was walking around the room with her, letting her name all the different parts of the house. And so that's something that we all have an opportunity to do at Advent and Christmas too, to just be with kids and to not dominate the activity, but to just let them run the show for a little while, let them lead us in what they are experts in, which is childlikeness. At Christmas time, we have time to rest. And uh, that's something we as adults think is unimportant or silly, but it absolutely is an invitation into the heart of God. And I believe that when God gave the Israelites rest in the wilderness. Before he gave them the Ten Commandments, he gave them Sabbath. He's reminding them, you're not slaves anymore. You're children. And uh, so what does it look like for us to be children in this break and say, I'm going to rest because I'm a child of God and because my identity is not based based on what I accomplish and his delight in me is not only based on my productivity. And so what does it look like for me to step aside from my work where I think I'm saving the world and trust that he can hold the world for a little while and I can sleep or do whatever is rest for me, you know, mm-hmm. right there. It's very humbling to rest, especially in our, in our culture. Manny, thanks for, thanks for coming back on the podcast and we will have you back again. And the next time I want you to explain to us why Americans love Hugh Jackman so much. <laughs> okay, I'll think about that. Thanks for coming back. All right, good to have, good to be here. How that in Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name. What tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. What tidings of comfort and joy. We can say Merry Christmas again. I've been saying it all day in every shopping area possible. We are free to say it again. So Merry Christmas, everyone, from Mockingbird Ministries. If that Mockingbird won't sing, it's because we need some more money, right, David, to make the the Mockingbird sing. It's that time of the year. It's a last chance for tax deductions. I didn't see it coming. That was beautiful, Scott. I am uh, I am here with David Zoll and Sarah Condon, and we are just, you know, we depend on your generosity and enthusiasm and encouragement. And so if you want that mockingbird to keep singing, you better buy the diamond ring. <laughs> that is the worst fun I've seen. That was awesome. Well, let's see if the dollars come in, Sarah. <laughs> let's see, man. Copper copper rings will do fine. Wooden Public rings. Public radio got nothing on us. <laughs> Bone rings. Beautiful, Scott. Thank you. Um, yeah, but seriously. I mean, the, the alternative is we could stop talking about what we're talking about every three minutes and say, hey, this okay. program can't go on yeah, exactly. unless you pony up. I'd rather not do that. Hit it, David. Say something, you know, like you're supposed to say in moments like this. <laughs>
<laughs> no, a, thank you, Scott, for teeing it up. I mean, um, p- people are being very supportive, and uh, we're very grateful. And um, yeah, look forward to hopefully seeing some more stuff come in. But um, just really encouraged by the response we've already seen to that letter. And uh, there'll be something on the site next week. None of us will be working, but there'll be something on the site sort of giving a little bit more details. So if people are holding out, don't forget that if you become a monthly contributor of any amount, even five bucks a month, though some people give as much as like, you know, honestly, four figures, uh, they, uh, you, you automatically get a subscription to The Mockingbird and, um, and Sarah Condon will uh, record your voicemail message, right? Oh, wait Absolutely. a second. <laughs> Absolutely. I- I'll do it. Yeah. And I mean, if they want to sound like they're related to a hillbilly who did their voicemail <laughs> message, then I'm your gal. <laughs> You've reached me, Ma. Um, <laughs> exactly. So there that you have it. My- that, that's my pitch. Some people will be working, David. Jake and I will be doing same old song. It's Because you know what? The devil doesn't take off between Christmas and New Year's. Neither do the laborers in the vineyard preaching the word of God. So Jake and I will be doing... We're actually taping tomorrow morning for Christmas Sunday. Even We already did our Christmas Eve episode. And it was dedicated to you, David, our most faithful listener. Yeah, 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 yeah. You guys are really funny, I think. By the way, I just want to note, I think Simeon Zoll is our most downloaded podcast in one week. What? I, I, uh, all, all about the guest. I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> Name names. Give data. Show me. Show me the numbers. <laughs> oh, beautiful, beautiful. I guess that the Nazareth principle is uh, is he, he was onto something with that after all. I like it. I like it. It was December twenty fourth on Hollis Avenue, the dark. When I seen a man chilling with his dog in the park, I approached him very slowly with my heart full of fear. Looked at his dog. Oh my God. The holidays are for, we just had a conversation with Mandy Smith about kind of mixed feelings at the holidays. I mean, oftentimes we feel the agony and the ecstasy or one or the other or something in between. And one of the things that is so fascinating is we have this article, right? There's no weekender this week, but we're just making our own little another weekends right here. It's a conversational oral tradition like the Bible started. Mm-hmm. Before it was inscripturated, so uh, we'll just highlight a few articles and maybe we'll throw them up on the site or something. But it's interesting that you know how, how I feel like uh, on Martin Luther King Day, they always say uh, in, so in certain contexts, say it's not a day off, it's a day on, and mm-hmm. encouraging kind of national service. I feel like the holidays don't become days off; they just become different kinds of days on. Mm-hmm. And we have an article on busyness. Yeah, I mean that certainly uh, flows right into what. Jenna McGregor was reporting in the Washington Post about how busyness became a bona fide status symbol. This is something that they're just kind of putting, they're actually putting numbers on, uh, something that we've been talking about for a long time. Uh, She opens by saying that in our information-drenched 24-7 workplace, uh, where time for leisure has become an even scarcer commodity for many professionals than money to buy luxury goods, being, quote, so busy seems to be a badge of honor, a status symbol in our always-on world. Now, researchers from Columbia, Georgetown, and Harvard universities say that that's exactly what it is, with busyness replacing conspicuous consumption as a public marker for our worth. 
Sylvia uh, Beleza, who's the professor of marketing at Columbia University behind this, she, she says that luxury goods are losing their signaling value because more people can afford them. And so that talking about a scarcity of time instead of displaying an abundance of like possessions is a more nuanced way to display your importance. Uh, one that doesn't go through sort of, you know, I have this kind of car, that kind of watch. It's implicitly telling you that I am very important and my human capital is sought after, which is why I'm so busy. And she goes on to talk about how... You know, uh, most bosses will even say it doesn't matter how many hours you're here as long as uh, the, what, what counts is the results. I want to see the, the work. But she says her first her first job, that actually wasn't true. Her boss told her all he wanted to see was results. But then uh, he also told her that the junior should never leave before the boss. So um, it's it's sort of it's stuff we've talked about in many ways. Well, one of the fresh things I, I found was that online shopping is seen as more prestigious than uh, in this kind of context than uh, shopping at bricks and mortar. So they've compared, you know, things like Trader Joe's and Peapod, and Peapod was seen as more prestigious, even got basically the same quality of food. That shopping online conveys that the person doesn't have time to shop. And therefore, it operates as a signal of status. She also talks about that Cadillac ad, or that, or that they just have social anxiety. Yeah, I know. <laughs> there are yeah. lots of reasons. I she she mentions something about how like we're actually marketers are really starting to realize this, and you're starting to see products that have nothing to do with efficiency or productivity, like a Cadillac, but it's being marketed to you because as as someone who doesn't have a lot of free time, like we know your time is scarce, so that's why you need to buy this product, and uh, it's this. Kind kind of sad situation in which we find ourselves all reeling from at the holidays but there you have it you guys busy i mean you know what's so cool about being married to um a clergy person i mean he's my you know we're both clergy but he's the one that's got the church he runs it's so cool it's like this time of year when people are like i'm so busy are you busy you get to be like yeah i'm busy my husband's a priest you know (laughs) it's like it's like such a bonus and uh I've stopped doing that. I used to do that every year. And it's so it was really weird to read this piece because to like tonight I went to pick up the pizza and there was this like 25 year old behind the counter who was like, hey, are you guys really busy this time of year? I mean, she doesn't know me. And I had this moment where I was like, I want to be like, yeah, really busy. My husband's a priest. And then I was like, nope keep it together like not really as important as you think you are but it it was like a real connection with this piece of even though no one thinks priests lots of money there's definitely like a certain um like social status that I, i think i've used in the past around this time of year um like if you think you're busy imagine like you know your husband being on the whole time um that i really have tried to kind of cut back on because it's just lame so much for conversational skills of 25-year-olds at pizza shops, by the way. Like, hi, are you guys busy? Oh, wow. What an engaging salvo conversationally. Wow. She told me my glasses were cool, so let's let's give her some, some space, you know? I'll take it. I'll take it. She's like, are you the author of Churchy? <laughs> <laughs> I'd recognize those glasses anywhere. Yeah, exactly. That's what happened. One of the things that I, the one of the more interesting analyses I found of the kind of work ethic, and by the way, I feel just a totally pot kettle black. Uh, recently, I was going to some family get together, and one of the uh, men, the spouses involved, like couldn't get there until that night, and I somehow felt that because I could get there earlier, I felt so, somehow less than it was pathetic. But I, you know, even you write about these things all the time, it, you're not immune from them. But um, the economist did something about this um, that we wrote about earlier this year. 
it says that people actually prefer to work really hard, not just because it's prestigious, but because it's it's a cognitive and emotional relief to immerse yourself in something that's consuming uh, while other difficulties float by. That like intellectual puzzles are nothing uh, next to those emotional ones, that work is a refuge, that we love the office because it allows us, yes, to feel productive and worthy, but also because it allows us to, to distract us from deeper and less manageable realities. That like, you know, I mean, if we put it in our terminology, if work has traditionally been a means of appeasing judgment and law, well, today it's that as well as a way of fleeing from it. Mm. So I, 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 I resonate with that. Even if your workplace is a place where you go to talk about these things. I don't like being busy. Yeah, you don't. You've said that to me before. I, I don't. Honest, I, that's I, an honest statement from you. I don't feel more important when I'm busy. Yeah. I don't feel better when I'm busy. That's awesome, man. I don't, I don't feel like... Uh, I mean, not that I don't like doing things I like, and some of those things are probably in a work categories, but like, I don't... I, I generally don't... I, 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 if I could be more bohemian, I would be. <laughs> <laughs> and I am pretty bohemian and I could if it could get more bohemian it would nice so. wow the Pittsburgh 10 and a bohemian in disguise exactly <laughs> exactly well I mean I, it's, you, you can't like be a Pittsburgh 10 like if you're stressed all the time you gotta relax your skin cracks you gotta like well you know it's interesting we're talking about stress because the, the thing you sent me Scott um is about heart attacks, how heart attacks spike at Christmas. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and, that's very interesting, guys. I'm thinking like, wow, yeah, that's nuts. Yeah, I mean, people have always sort of, that's been anecdotal, that uh, you know a lot of people die during the holidays. Um, and some scientists have said, oh, it's just because the weather's colder. And you know there, is, there are various factors, circumstantial factors, that aren't, so have nothing to do with the holidays. But in Time Magazine... I uh, found that it reported at least on some some new study that even when Christmas occurs during warmer weather, deaths around the holiday season increase by about 4% compared to the average for the rest of the year. And the average age of people dying around this time is also slightly younger than that of the remainder of the year. So it does seem to suggest that the holidays themselves might be contributing to the increased mortality. And naturally, part of this has to do with it being a stressful time, uh, family, social, financial obligations, higher blood pressure, aggravation of heart disease risk factor, plus richer foods. Sure. That, uh, that typically appear uh, as well as sort of you know, alcohol consumption. And then um, there's that, I think you've written, you wrote about it in Churchy, I, I believe, Sarah, but like that, that there's a real phenomenon that people often hold on until the holidays. If they're, if they're really terminally ill, they hold on until this time when people can come together or they're waiting for that. Um, and this is why we see, I mean, I, I'm convinced that the holidays sort of bring out uh, whatever's going on in your personal life. It, it feels like I'm just surrounded by lives exploding at this time of year. I don't know about you guys, but yeah, I think that's accurate. I, I mean, I feel like everything, everybody's sort of held together all year. It's like, <clears throat> there's so much ground you have to cover during the holidays that it's going to eke out all over the place. And I mean, there are definitely just, there are so many more funerals this time of year. I, I, I was actually thinking of this last week. I was thinking about how many people were dying and I looked it up and the, the highest month just for death in general, um, not heart related is January. Um, and the theory is that people try to hold out through the holidays, but you know, at the church I work at, we've had, I mean, it feels like there've been a ton of funerals over the past few weeks. It's just part of it. 
Mm-hmm. Also, snow shoveling. My wife used to work in the oh. ER, and she said snow shoveling, so many heart attacks. Really? Yeah, because that's hard work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, people are inactive, and yeah. you know they come out first snow of the year, yeah. and they try to dig out, and man, it's bad. It's bad. Well, I didn't know so that. So hire that kid. It's better some... for the economy too. If you've got yeah. some discretionary income, hire that kid. That kid who needs to work in your neighborhood might also be doing some last-minute Christmas shopping. <laughs> <laughs> well, this uh, Scott was um, you sent us something that I this was your discovery that I think was like one of the coolest things I've I've read uh, in. Yeah, there's uh, lots of last-minute gift gift uh, lists out there, and we actually have a great gift gift list on Mockingbird's website. But if you want to be a true traditionalist, which I am, which is why my favorite. Christmas song is Dominic the Donkey. But if you wanted to be really traditional, we've got a breakdown here from the New York Times, right, David? On Yeah, what- they're basically measured the, the economy, how the economy is doing, by how much it would cost to actually purchase everything that's in the 12 Days of Christmas uh, song. And um, it's, it's pretty, it's remarkably entertaining that if you were to buy, I mean, we're talking about the pear tree, the partridge in the pear tree, the turtle doves, the golden rings, everything up to the, you know, Lord's the leaping, the whole, the whole, all 12, uh, that the whimsical splurge will run a little less than 1% more than last year, largely because of slow economic growth. The total to get all of this stuff would be $34,363.49. Now, the two things that stuck out to me um, were, first of all, the, the costs of uh, two turtle doves, which is sometimes considered a symbol of true love. It, um it's gone up by 29.3% since last year because there's a shortage of birds, I guess, worldwide. So you learn something new every day. But the, the, and that kind of, got kind of like, uh, you know, informs the, the next thing is that the big ticket item today in the uh, 12 Days of Christmas song uh, are the swans. And they, the, she's with a straight face, Elizabeth Olsen, who's reporting on this, and I don't think any relation to the actress, uh, says the cost for swans has historically been volatile. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't know that. Swans, I know that they are volatile in terms of temperamental. <laughs> says this year, the wedge of elegant birds had an impressive $13,000, $125 price tag or $1,875 each, which is the same as last year. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you're looking to get some swans, you better pony up. And if it's a <laughs> tough year for you and your family, six geese laying can be procured for $360. Yeah, the, the maids are milking because of the minimum wage is just $58. And <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you what I find interesting, okay? Despite the $0.78 cents to the dollar wage gap gender wise 10 lords of leaping is fifty five hundred and eight dollars male entertainers didn't fare any better than their female counterparts this year they were consigned to performing their athletic feats for the same price so who says that 
we're not making progress cracking that glass ceiling. <laughs> there you have it. On the twelfth day of Christmas, my children gave to me twelve hugs and kisses, eleven jars of jelly, ten linen hankies, nine games of Scrabble, eight pairs of cufflinks, seven books of fiction, six woolen nightshirts, five ivory combs, four mission pipes, three golf clubs, two silken scarves, and a most lovely. What are the what are the big what are the big ticket items in the in the Condon household this year? What, what's a, are we allowed to 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 uh, divulge yet? Uh, yeah, I mean, so we've just we don't know what to buy each other anymore. That's where we are in marriage. Um, so <laughs> he, we just don't ha- we don't need anything. Do you know what I mean? Like you're at that point where like you're pretty much the same size. You don't need more clothes. Like he's gotten me jewelry. Like so I don't know what he's getting me, but I've definitely hit that point with him. So I got him a really expensive bottle of bourbon tonight that we've already opened. Ooh. Yeah. What, what about what about uh, Neil and Annie? Oh, they're getting all kinds of crap. Yeah. There's like a whole bunch of stuff under the tree and there's like things that talk. We did not get a, a Hatchimal, which was, do you, are you doing you know the Hatchimals? Uh, no. Oh my gosh. G- guys, you got, you got to, you got to Google Hatchimal. So it's like a, it's like an egg you get. So it's a toy. It's an egg you get and you have to like, as my son said, give it lots of love. So you have to rub it and then it cracks and it's an infant like stuffed animal and then you have to keep rubbing it and it turns into a toddler and you have to keep rubbing it and it turns into a child and my kid got is this legal (laughs) yeah isn't it it's bizarre so my kid my kid got sent to the principal's office okay a few weeks ago principal's office and we have this awesome guy who um who works at the school who was like sitting in the office with him and he's like hey neil have you heard about hatchimals and so he shows my kid this video of hatchimals and it's all neil can talk about but they're like like i i mean i wouldn't have a huge problem with it i mean i I feel like i'm not interested in bringing another newborn into the house so the fact that i would be paying for one is a little annoying but um but they're two hundred and eighty dollars right now. Oh my goodness! Like that's there's not like so retail. many things on the twelve days of Christmas. I know. That's less than that. That's not retail's like eighty, but you can't get them anymore. So there, so he's not getting that. He's getting like a dragon that like like steams onto marshmallows or something. But anyway, it's something like like what thirty five maids of milking. Yeah, it's a it's it's a lot. Yeah, it's a big it's a big chunk. Yeah, he's getting that. You know, I mean, Annie will get dolls. It'll be great. They'll they have so much stuff under the tree. Scott, what what do you wish? What's on your Christmas list? Dominic the donkey. Dominic always. I mean, always. actually, maybe a donkey named Dominic. If any of our listeners raise donkeys, uh, it's very. I feel like it's, you know, it's 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 appropriate to the season. You know, it's really interesting. My aunt Edie, who's my mom's aunt, whoops, my great aunt. She's a she's a very beloved person. She my uncle Vernon, and she would she's a very wise, savvy kind of woman, and. You know, around the holidays, people would just bring gifts to her, you know, and like people that like probably weren't on her gift list. And so she kept a closet full of generic gifts, like fruit baskets that, you know, with cheese and things like that, or like unisex kind of generic gifts, mm-hmm. which I always thought that's, that's very, well, again, you only have this problem if people like you, but, it, <laughs> but if, 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 if you're someone that's popular or if you're someone that people want to be ingratiated to. But, you know, Miroslav Volf in a, in a book called Free of Charge says that basically we, on the level of human relations, you know, if, if I 
want to take what you have with no regard for you or for fairness. That's theft. And if I, normally we don't live on our good days there. Now, if I'm giving something of value to you in exchange for something of value from you, that's exchange. And while we like to think we get a good deal, generally, even when we get a really good deal, we don't think it's theft. He says, when I give you something with no expectation for reciprocity, it's a gift. And he said that, you know, the, and as, as I, when I first read that, I, I thought, I actually remember thinking about my Aniti and thinking about her practice is that her fear was that gifts were not really gifts, but mm. veiled exchanges. So she was always ready to like make the exchange on the spot. And I think, and then Volf says that at the level of human relations, what's equivalent to stealing is revenge. And what's equivalent to exchange is justice where there's, uh, where, you know, revenge just says, I want to hurt you. I don't care what you did to me. I'm going to hurt you as much as I can. Justice is I want parity for the hurt or the wrong done. And he said, forgiveness is a gift. And so I think one of the reasons gift giving is, is, can be a challenge is the worst sort of reception of a gift is when you sneakingly think it's actually an exchange where you're being cajoled into, you know, and obligated in some way. So there we go. So, it's like, it's like when Jerry gets those uh, Super Bowl tickets, remember? Exactly. Oh, sorry. It's the when Kenny Bonnie gives him the suit. That's the real. That's the Seinfeld reference here. Santa's got a little friend. His name is Dominic. The cutest little donkey. You never see him kick. When Santa visits his paisans with Dominic, he'll be. Because the reindeer cannot climb the hills of Italy. Hey, jingity jing. It's Dominic the donkey. Jingity jing. The Italian Christmas donkey. Okay, as we're uh, growing old on this podcast, we'll we'll close with the... Uh, <laughs> With uh, the a new little thing on comment um, in this comment site from Cornelius Plantinga, the philosopher, sort of uh, reviewing, I guess he's actually he's actually not a philosopher. Okay. Just want to set, set his family member. I, I I don't know if it's his cousin. Is he's Alvin a waitress, Plantinga. right? Is that what you're saying? No, he's a professor of preaching, and I think he's the president of Calvin Seminary. But his field is not philosophy. I just want to point that out there. Not that I want to be a know-it-all. Don't get it but- twisted, David. <laughs> I blew it, guys. Um, <laughs> it's all right. There'll be other opportunities. <laughs> um, he's sort of reviewing or a, a new edition of Cicero's How to Grow Old, the you know classic of wisdom literature. And, uh, you know, I haven't read that book um, myself, but I know that a lot of people have. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of, of what he writes. He says, following the Stoic conviction, Cicero counsels us to fit ourselves into the natural scheme of things, in which we are successively infants, juveniles, young adults, middle-aged, elderly, super old, and dead. With awesome inevitability, that's the way life goes, and it's folly to resist. You can't fight nature and hope to prevail. The way of wisdom is to surrender and look for opportunities along the way. Cicero notes that everyone hopes to live through to old age, but then complains about it when it arrives, and that's folly. Instead, cultivate a calm and judicious life from the time you're young, and then let your life ripen. If you've been mean or petty, old age will exaggerate these vices, but if you've been generous or gracious, old age will expand these virtues. You reap what you sow. I mean, heavy law with a capital L here. Um, but so... Basically, uh, Plantinga is how, how as a Christian do I do I receive this, and is with gratitude for um, 
Cicero's wisdom, which is obvious, um, but also with regret. And he says, what I regret is the avoidance of all aggravation. So little of the drama of sin and grace appears in Cicero. But that drama plays out every day. Uh, aging uh, people rue missed opportunities to confess their misdeeds to loved ones and perhaps to receive a word of forgiveness. They wish they'd been kinder to a parent and now lament that it's too late. The only meaning our lives have is a meaning conferred by the everlasting love of God. This is the love that has planted the generations, cultivated and delighted in us, worried over us and worked among us when we were laid low, and that one day comes for us not as a grim reaper to cut us down, but as a faithful gardener who wants to transplant his trees to a place where their leaves shall never wither, a place where their leaves can be for the healing of the nations. These are lives that gain whatever meaning they have in being treasured by God and then being spent to increase the divine pleasure. Aging is a pilgrimage and a solid hope uh, of a solid new heaven and earth. Cicero's account of aging is all calm rationality. He never raises his voice. Christians may accept his common sense, but will miss in it the pain and joy of dying and rising with Jesus Christ and the forward movement of pilgrimage toward the city of God. Dun, da, da, dun. I thought this was cool. I mean, I... I thought the first part of it was cool. I, I, I'm totally into somebody like naming the fact that death is inevitable, that old age is inevitable, that there are some really beautiful things about accepting the things that we can still do. I mean, he sort of has this whole list about you can still take a walk and you can still talk to friends. And, you know, I mean, the, life is so rich for all these reasons as we age. I guess I wanted him to to give up even more. That was what I wanted. I, I because he he still seems to sort of institute this level of control with the the narrative. I mean, you said it was law, but I mean, just the stuff about there's a lot of language about being quiet, which for somebody like me is really annoying. Like you know, if you lead sort of a quiet younger life, and you'll be quiet as you're older. And all I can think when I hear that is like I'm going to be a, a terrible person to be around in old age. <laughs> I'm already so loud. How can I be louder? You know. Um, and that I always get a little anxious when that becomes a narrative of Christianity, like quietness. Um, I mean, it has its place. It has its purpose. And um, certainly there's all sorts of scripture people point to to justify it. And I get that. But as someone who is intrinsically loud and sinful, um, I do get a little anxious when someone starts to tell me that, like, this is how Christians are going to age because um, it's, it's a pretty it's a pretty firm line. But. The virtue here, to use one of his words, um, that I found very helpful is is, is a very a, an open conversation about the fact that that everyone is dying, everyone's going to die, and um, living in fear of that is just you know is not not helpful. So we won't be recording podcasts as like seventy year olds, <laughs> eighty year olds. I'm gonna be. Hey, the the Rolling Stones are still playing. You know. <laughs> I'm going to be, I don't know what I'm going to be doing, but yeah, not probably not, probably not recording podcasts. I don't know. Who knows what we'll be doing. We'll just be like, you know, it'll be like black mirror. We'll just be like thinking stuff and it'll go out in the cloud and <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no one San, will have to walk San anywhere. San Junipero, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dancing to eighties music. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Years ago, Krista Tippett did an interview with a guy named um, Vegan Gororian. And he said, I think he's at UVA, actually, David. You could probably go hang out with this guy. At least he used to be. And in it, they had a reading from, he's Armenian Orthodox, and they have a reading from this apocryphal, this Armenian apocryphal Adam um, literature that's 
published section of it's published in his book, The Fragrance of God. And in this apocryphal Adam and Eve story, we, we hear these words. After Adam and Eve were beguiled by the serpent and ate the forbidden fruit of the tree, God commanded his angels to remove them from the garden and to guard the paths to it with a fiery sword. And so Adam and his wife were banished from the garden and its light and abundant life and entered a place of darkness and gloom. They remained there in misery for six days without anything to eat and no shelter. They wept inconsolably over what they had lost and where they were sent. But on the seventh day, God took pity on the couple. He sent an angel who removed them from the dark place and led them into this bright world. The messenger showed them trees from which they could eat and satisfy their hunger. And when Adam and Eve saw the light and felt the warmth of this world, they rejoiced with exceeding gladness, saying, Even though this place cannot compare with the home we have lost, and its light is not nearly as bright or its fruit half as sweet, nevertheless, we are no longer in the darkness and can go on living. So they were cheerful. And into the darkness came the great light. And so, yeah, because of divine pity, we are not as pitiable as we feel. Thank goodness. <laughs> well, Merry Christmas to both of you and to everyone and out there. to you. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. Yep. Thanks for listening to the Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please go over to iTunes and give us a rating. Maybe even write a review, hopefully a positive one. Maybe even pass it along via social media to a friend. We exist because of the generosity, support, and enthusiasm of you, our listeners and readers. And for that, we are forever grateful. The podcast is produced by yours truly, ably assisted by my associate, David Peterson. Thanks again for listening. Have a great weekend and a very Merry Christmas. The Belfry is up.